Hi, I'm Caroline Carey, and you know, I'm always inspired by other people's life stories. So I listen for the soul journey that is interwoven between each individual's experiences throughout their life. Join me to hear for yourself how each narrative becomes a transformative and inspiring message for us all. Enjoy the podcasts. I used to attend many festivals in the summer months when my children were quite small. Not big festivals, just the small kind. That was years ago and I'm not so interested in festivals anymore. But I do like going to one in particular where I share some of my work and often the dance, which is called Into the Wild. It's a very particular festival that is steeped in traditions, crafts, beautiful music. It feels very much rooted in our own culture. The workshops and the wonderful speakers who share their wisdom. It was created by Deja Hu, who dreamt up these festivals as being in connection with the wild of our own culture the countryside that we live amongst. Yeah, the beauty that we inherit here on this land. But Deja Hu is not only focused on festivals and bringing this wonderful community together, he's also very passionate about our land, our wildlife, the nature. He has an incredible amount of wisdom and knowledge that stems way, way back from his childhood living in Snowdonia in Wales. And he's able to share much of that wisdom with us. He's a father and a writer. And one of his passions now is rewilding some of the wilder lands of our heritage. I think if you are interested in rewilding, in festivals that promote our own culture here in the UK and uh, nature itself, I think you're going to love hearing what Hugh has to say. Enjoy. So Hugh, the last time I saw you, you were on your bike cycling through Into the Wild Festival and we stopped and chatted for a while. Um, you must have been through quite an experience putting all that together because there's quite a few hundred people there, lots of tents, marquees, um, a lot of work setting up musicians and all the rest of it. How do you how do you manage it? Oh, good question. Um, with a lot of help, <laughs> which great. is uh, a lot of great people in the background. Um, Doing what they do well, that's what really supports it. Um, and I think fundamentally what helps me to be with all, with what's going on is, I mean, it's it's kind of classic, but being present really is, is the key, isn't it? It's being in the moment and dealing with things as they arise because you always have so many un 
seen situations arising with that many people. Mm. Um, you know, we've had all sorts of scenarios with water running out and campervans going on fire and main tents falling apart. And you just have to um, deal with each thing as they come, don't you? You know, you make plans beforehand, but you can't plan for everything. So I think in my life, what's fundamentally helped me is you could say meditation, but the meditation where it's brought into daily life, you know, into each moment. So that's, that's kind of what helps me in the moment. And I think also it is the not being scared to, to go for things that you really love yourself. So to invite musicians and artists and what people that are doing things that you really resonate with, you know, so you're not so, so much thinking about, I'm doing this to make money to, to sell to people. You're following your kind of heart and longing and people get, you realize people are attracted. It's not because it's not just your longing and heart. It's things they also feel are important in their lives. I love that, Hugh. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. So what made you decide to organize festivals? Well, I was talking about this with a friend a couple of days ago, um, Andreas, um, you know, Andreas, the storyteller, uh, Cornival, I think, and his wife, Vicky, we were at our friend John Scaife's having some lunch and we were recalling that uh, many years ago, I used to invite Tibetan elders over um, and because I, I studied Tibetan medicine and spent a lot of time in Ladakh and in the Tibet when I was younger. Um, and one particular elder we had was called Kunzan Deching Lingpa, and he was 85 years old and he came to visit us in Sussex and he lived in a quite a remote monastery out on the edge of Bhutan and Arunachal Pradesh on the border of Tibet and India. Uh, it was kind of in India, but right on the borderlands. And I'd had a dream about him I spent a lot of time with Tibetans and before too long I made contact with him. I hadn't met him, but I'd had this dream and invited him to come over. Now he would, he did this particular practice, which was called healing chord. Chord is a practice they did in the graveyards. It's a shamanic practice really, but Tibetan shamanic and Buddhism are very interlinked. And it was set up by a woman called Magic Labdron, who was a yogi sh shaman, really, who would go to the cremation grounds and call in the what you might call the spirits as helpers, uh, allies. So overcoming fear and the attachment to the self fundamentally. And he did this practice called healing charge. He'd get a lot of his practice from dreams. And he had a monastery with many nuns and monks. And I invited him to come and he did come. He did divination. They do these Mo divinations in Tibet with these, um, I think they're sheep bones or something. And we got this email because there wasn't that many emails at that time. It was kind of early computer days. And he, I got this email saying, yeah, we're going to come in six weeks, nine of us. And we were like, where are they going to stay? You know, and anyway, various things happened. And what coincidences and situations, and he, and they came, and they did this practice where you lie down, 
a whole weekend, like four sessions, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and they do this practice church and they call in all the, the spirits and it's a healing practice to free you of things that you might have, might harm you, you could say, you know, from a shamanic point of view. And you offer you offer the, the spirits food and music and incense and things from the five elements. And whilst we were there, Andreas was there, I, I, I was a friend called Thomas who ran a project called Trackways and he'd run a little event and I was running these events. We were chatting around the fire and we said we should get together, bringing the kind of spiritual element with the kind of bushcraft tracking, you know. And so we set up an event called Wild Heart. And that was probably now about 16, 17 years ago. And the first one was about 150 people, quite a bunch of vagabonds in a field. I think, I'm not sure if you were there. I think Ben came to the, one of the first ones. And it was really simple and down to earth and really lovely. And we were a lot younger then. So we were, you know, and it was quite cheap. And I remember even selling all the tickets. We had to send out the tickets by letters, you know, and people would could had to send in the checks. You know, it was seems so archaic now. But so it kind of started from that, really. And here we are many years later with a, a festival of 5,000 people, which could have gone bigger, I guess, but I never want to make it bigger than that because, as you know, it's very family orientated now. And that makes sense because when I started, my kids were young and now they're 19, 20. But we, we have about 1,500 kids. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. It reminds me of, year, I mean, such a long time ago now. I, I don't even want to count. But when I first started going to camps and uh, they, were, they were called Rainbow Circle Camps and uh, festivals, went to Glastonbury a few times and uh, took my little kids and and it was so different the vibe was very different then and and yeah I get it you paid on the gate you got your stamp yeah. and your mark and you um yeah you, you, it was um you, you you certainly couldn't pay online or anything like that and the advertising was all on paper in fact that's how I started my own business so yeah no social media stuff then but it's so lovely to hear you talk about the beginnings of it um, I love that. And I, at the first time I came to one, we had our yurt. We brought our yurt along because we were living in our motorhome, I think. And um, yeah, we set our yurt up in the field and I did workshops from it. So I don't know which one that was. But what? tell me more about Tibet. Tell, you, how old were you when you went to Tibet? Gosh, right, let's have a thought. So I went to India my first time when I was about 21. And we arrived, me and my partner at the time in Delhi, with the intention for being there for six months with about 300 pounds, you know, in those days. And I remember arriving in Delhi in Parganj and stayed in this cheapest kind of hotel. And there were rats running around the bathroom. And I remember almost crying. It was so hot thinking, what have I done? You know, and six months later, um, when we left, I was crying because I didn't want to go home. You know, that's kind of how it was. But we survived that time, got um, hepatitis and all sorts of things. But one of the couple of the things we did though is we went to Sikkim and I fell in love with that culture, that part of, you know, I had this calling for the Himalayan culture. It was really 
had felt such a strong connection to it. I loved it. And spent quite a lot of time up in um, Dharamasala, met Dalai Lama. And I mean, in that time, we, we did all sorts. We worked in a home for uh, street children in southern India. We um, worked with Mother Teresa, with the destitute and dying, met Mother Teresa while she was still alive, met the Dalai Lama, had all sorts going on. Um, and the, the last part of our trip, we went up to... Was that the same year? No, that was the next year. But we went, we always wanted to go up to Ladakh, Zanskar, that, that kind of remote region, Tibetan Buddhist region. And so the following summer, we, we went up there. But one of the reasons I went up there is there was, there used to be a nightclub in London called Megatropolis. Did you ever, do you ever remember that or hear about it? Never um, It was set by a guy called, it, it was, set by a guy called Fraser Clark, who used to run a magazine called, I can't remember what it was, but it was all a, a very hippie-based magazine. And what we were we used to work there because we were squatting in London at the time. And we'd worked their face painting. You know, we were young and doing that. And one night he had invited Alan Ginsberg, the poet, Terence McKenna, the kind of DMT astronaut. And amongst all these quite well-known um, he's a little Tibetan guy, a Ladakhi Tibetan doctor called Amchi Sewang Smanla. And I really felt for him because he was really shy and it was his first time in the UK and he was giving a talk on traditional Tibetan medicine around these people talking about trips on DMT and, you know, Alan Ginsberg spending time with Chogyam Trungpa and all this, you know, with the beatniks and Jack Kerouac. And poor little guy was kind of in the midst of this world and for him it, it was so out of his kind of comfort zone but i went and met him and we became lifelong friends and since then he's been to the, i've invited him over a few times and he invited me to come and stay so we went the next summer to ladakh and he lives in this high altitude tiny little village in the middle of the remote mountains which we used to be part of western tibet and we went to stay with him and i just fell in love with that place you know, Ladakh, Zanskar. And then we ended up walking for a few hundred miles with a donkey and one guide um, from there back to India, which took three and a half weeks. And um, yeah, it was incredible. And no roads, you're, you're out in the mountains all that time, so. Quite an adventure, wow. Yeah, really amazing adventure. And what do you think it was that really inspired you at that age to go out there for, for that length of time to just to, to get on the plane, I presume you went on a plane, just to get yourself there? What do you think was the calling? Well, if I think about it now, I was interested in Druidism at the time. And I come from Anglesey in North Wales, which is obviously where was a kind of Druidic stronghold. And I was brought up there and I was always interested in spirituality on some level i think partly to do with losing my dad when i was young made me question something more but also i think taking magic mushrooms when i was quite young in wales that's kind of what you did 14 15 and that kind of blew everything apart from me because it was like there's another world out here what what is this majesty you know this these stories of other, other worlds and stuff so i was always searching and I was studying Druidism with Obod, the Order of British 
um, Barton, whatever it's called, and, and Druid, Ovates and Druids. And I found it a little bit, um, it lost, obviously lost its lineage at some point. So it, a lot of it was taking from other bits and ideas. So I was interested in something that maybe had kept a continuous lineage, you know, and India was the obvious place people would go to kind of look for deeper meaning, you might say. And also people were talking about Goa and it, it was a cheap place to go as well, if I'm honest, you know, cheap and easy. You get the flight and 300 pounds for six months, you know, wow. Yeah let go. Of course, yeah. And when you were very little, you say your dad died when you were very young. How old were you? Five. Five. That's very young to lose a father, isn't it? Um, yeah. What were you like as a little one? What were your interests? What, what were your hobbies? And So I was brought up in Anglesey. Um, well, I was, yeah, brought up in Anglesey in an old mansion house, which used to be a monastery that my mum turned into a uh, hotel basically my mum was pretty dynamic she was brought up pretty poor her dad my granddad was killed trying to save the king of Norway um, in the second world war and they they were based in Malta in Valletta and my grandmother and my auntie, so so she had she was about six months old, and my her sister was two, and he died, and they had to escape, um, get through Malta through Italy after Mussolini had taken over, and they got back, they got through just, and they went, they had to go back to Wales, and when they got there, they had nothing pretty much, so they were given a, a, a they had a like a a basic house, but they were pretty poor and my grandmother used to make all their clothes out of parachutes that were dropped to drop food and stuff and the local people would leave bits of sheep's head and food around and it was pretty it was a pretty um hardcore very hard to imagine now you know but my mum was pretty driven after that so she was quite dynamic at the time so when she bought this place which was it was like 100 acres and a 50, 60 bedroom mansion. And she managed to get a loan from the from the bank, which was pretty rare in those days, uh, for about 150 grand, which was probably about a million pound now. Um, and being a, a, a woman, it wasn't normal, let's say, at that time. Really? But she was dynamic and driven and she had the power of persuasion and she got the loan and did this place up and ran it as a hotel. And I think it wore my dad out. My dad had a problem with drink and that's what finished him off in the end. So then my mum carried on and yeah, so I was brought up in this old mansion house surrounded by ancient forests without my dad, because I can't really remember my dad. My first memory was kind of him dying the day after and then what I remember is running around in the woods and being out all the time. And that's kind of what's inspired what I do now, really, into the wild and helping kids get out into nature. Because for me, I'm in, completely in love with nature and I find my, I guess, my spirituality within nature. And I think that's, that had a very much, big part of it. I just remember spending all my summer holidays after school in the forest, playing, exploring, you know, that was it. That's so 
beautiful to hear and just how you you found your solace in that and your medicine what you needed and now you're offering it to children around the world and and I think that's such a gift wow so no wonder you're bringing people together for the children to experience that of all ages hey of all ages exactly yeah so it's it's a lot of fun I mean into the wild festival is is definitely I, I can feel that child self there. You know, so many interesting things to do and to explore and to make and create. Uh, you, you know, and, and the entertainment value of it—it's it, beautiful. And that getting back to nature, you always include these wonderful areas where children can just go and play and explore and make things and uh, be in in that zone, which is fantastic. You don't get that in all festivals, hey. No, and now, now it's become more and more the emphasis. Now it's that um, the the intention is the profits from that go back to nature recovery projects, and we're and we're running one of our own as as a sideline, if you like, or a separate issue as part of our the rest of our lives to try and encourage that support all year round for smaller groups. Because for me, it's the bio, there's the climate crisis and the biodiversity biodiversity crisis which are the same thing really but you know you can focus on various elements like anything and for me it's folk i'm really passionate about the, the biodiversity crisis that a lot of people are either not really aware of or don't seem to talk about um you start to look at what we've lost in this in this country it's unbelievable the amount of bird life um, wildlife uh, marine life um insect life it's it's so tragic and if we don't turn that round that is going to have such an impact on everyone's life you know and nature we just it's there's just tiny fragments of what there was were once if you read the reports of naturalists a hundred years ago even 60 years ago on and the further you go back it's just astounding what's you know it would be normal for people to experience wondrous nature moments or big flocks of birds or you know these these situations and they're just becoming rarer and rarer so if somehow we can help turn that tide for me that would be a life worth living i think oh absolutely yeah and, and what are you what are you focusing on because you've got other projects you say as well as into the wild yeah so we've got this wilderlands farm project which is um uh, in Sussex and it's basically 280 acres at the moment potentially will grow it's a small farm that we bought for 20 odd acres but we've got highland cows on we're replanting or, um, orchards hopefully with the children's forest we are um, bringing back wildflower meadows ponds as much habitat as we can and then we're working with a charity called green britain um who is owned by an old um, a colleague if you like who has bought 230 acres of ancient forest and another 44 acres so it, they're all joined together and so we're helping to manage that and so we've just had derek gower on friday who's the guy who's reintroduced all the beavers back into the uk and things like beavers, what people don't realise is they're, they're native, they were wiped out for their furs, but they're a keystone species. 
So if you, when you get beavers in the environment, they stop flooding. They create incredible habitat, habitats by creating pools and wetlands, which bring in more insects and that brings in more birds. And it's just a whole process, an ecosystem. So they're starting to come back, even though there's a lot of um, farmers or NFU people trying to stop it. But we need to bring back these species that we've taken out of the ecosystem because then you get a holistic vibrant um, biodiversity arising so we've just been starting this project early this year and it's it, i mean a year ago now you asked me we, i would never had no idea and here we are life just throws these unexpected um situations and part of it happened to me during the pan pandemic in a way because there was that moment when everything stopped, you know? Remember that moment when oh, yeah. everything just stopped, the road stopped, shopping stopped, people stopped, and everyone took like a, a mighty breath. And I remember my daughters living with us. We had this little wooden house um, on the edge of the forest with these lovely gardens we were renting. And they were there for weeks and nobody had any, any um, deadlines, you know? Everybody was, we were just there in the moment and it was that beautiful spring and it was just quiet and nature was thriving. So I had plenty of time to read and explore. And I, that's when I started to exploring a lot of nature writing about what we had, what we lost, what what we can do about it. You know, things like Nepa State over in West Sussex. Um, and that made me really inspired to want to do something. So I just said this Wildlands, idea really a website and an idea and put it out there and since putting that out there i've ended up with this land and this this dream so it's it's kind of quite magic how it's happened what we, what happened to me was there's there's um gary snyder the the american poet wrote um become famous for five miles you know so get to know your landscape local landscape i spent a lot of time traveling to india and america and wherever so suddenly it was when no one was traveling just exploring the landscape around you and that meant for me is almost listening to the the language which is beyond the conceptual mind of the ghosts if you like of the landscape or the song of the landscape and you could hear on some level you could hear the what's missing, the song of the wolf or the, the beavers or the the cranes, you know, the, the storks. And you start thinking, this is what belongs here. And this is what is part of this landscape on some level. Um, and I was thinking, how can I help? And here we are, we, we're starting a few small steps. And what's interesting about Sussex is it's on the cutting edge of that at the moment interestingly with the Napa State, we're part of this project called Wheel to Waves, which is a hundred mile nature corridor, which runs all the way up the Ada Valley, right down the Ouse Valley. And it's trying to connect farms, landscapes, um, estates, gardens, whatever, communities for a nature corridor, because for nature to thrive, it needs these corridors, which are wildish, you know? So we're part of this project, which is really taking off. 
so it's really good place to be at the moment if you're doing this kind of work in Sussex because there's a lot of support and there's a lot of people who are open-minded to it yeah interesting and we've had two other guys on this podcast one was Jonathan Weeks the other was Jonathan not sorry Roger Ross um, and they've both doing similar kinds of work to help protect and bring more nature back into alignment with how it should be so um, there's definitely a lot happening from just what I'm hearing on this podcast which is great and so important so what are your next steps with that you know where where do you hope to take this um, you, you've mentioned quite a lot about that but um, you know what's your personal vision for it well I think it's about rewilding if you like but um reconnecting as much as anything or recreating community but not just a human community but including a human community of rewilding but about more than human so it's thinking about the habitats for everything from the insects and the, the wetlands and everything that relies on that so you create so you take the sheep off which just eat everything and then you create longer grasses and you let scrub come back and butterflies and bees come back and so already this summer we've got hobbies nesting there there's oaks already starting to come through the longer grass you create a mix of habitats so you've got biodiversity on that level which which is going to be a long process reintroducing pine martins beavers but also we're trying to reach out to groups so we're working with um, groups that work with black, Asian minority, people from London who don't have a strong voice or appearance in the countryside. We know what, you know, the English countryside is still quite white and old in some respects. So it's how we help people to use the resources, resources we have to, to connect with nature and get inspired by that. So we want to work with people with learning difficulties, with um, black age minorities with young people so doing rites of passages we've got people coming and they're doing um bushcrafts and ecotherapy in the woods we've got traditional skills we want to keep them going so we've got um, already got courses in the woods where people spend five days making traditional wooden chairs from from scratch um coppicing making biochar all sorts of layers that people can get involved with you know from gardening to chopping wood to more the spiritual reconnection if you like retreats so we're, we're reaching out to partners at the moment and, and creating a plan over the next two or three years where we can create a a vision where groups can come in we've like for example in hastings i think do you live in hastings or are you in seaford now i'm in hastings yeah yeah so there's project rewild from hastings um We've invited them and they're interested in coming. Um, we were in Hastings this last weekend speaking to Craig Sams all about biochar and we're, we're, we're going to be doing that with coppicing and they all that all helps Habitat at the same time. So we're just trying to create a vision at the moment which includes a biodiverse, if you like, aspect of humans plus creating a biodiverse landscape of other beings as well so trying to, to bring the two together nice so what are you up against because you 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 said and i'm very curious about this that they're trying to stop beavers from being reintroduced what's that about well, what 
Well, what we're up against is the the whole system, really, the 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 system of England, of the United Kingdom, of the people, with the loud voices minority who are the la who are some of the landowners, who are big agricultural farms, shooting, um, lots of sheep, which which are relying on subsidies. For example, where I'm from in Snowdonia. 90% of the land is owned by a small percentage of people, but worked by 2%, 1% of the whole land. And you have so many million sheep compared to people, and nearly all those sheep farms only survive by subsidies. So the rest of the people are paying subsidies for these sheep farms to exist, and only a certain percentage of people eat lamb anyway, but not even that, that there's so many sheep, they do a lot of damage to the landscape. For example, along the whole coast of Cornwall, Wales, Scotland, you would have had the, there are still remnants of it, but the Atlantic rainforest, which is a uh, Western Atlantic rainforest, is an incredible landscape. And traditionally, it would have been a huge area of rainforest, really. That's why those areas are so rainy. That's why they're so wet. They're actually rainforest areas and they're hugely important in terms of mosses and mushrooms and um, fungi and all sorts traditionally. And there, there are remnants left, but so much of it has been ruined by sheep farming and agriculture um, over the years. So what you're up against is a whole system that has been funded to make profit, if you like, out of nature rather than um, encourage biodiversity and wildlife. So, you know, you, you've got different mindsets and you can just see by what we've wiped out. Wildcats is interesting. So wildcats are native to the whole of Britain. Now you get the Scottish wildcat, they call it Scottish, because it, it, it got so wiped out that it only lives in a very small part of Scotland now. Traditionally, wildcats were everywhere. You can read records in the 1800s of wildcats in Wales. They're a native part of this landscape. You can find records from, I can't remember, if the 17 or 1800s, where big estates would, were killing 400 wildcats a year. You know, this is in Yorkshire up north. The kites, you know, harriers, they was, these were all part of our landscape. People that just have no idea what was what we've lost it's so it's so unfathomable the amount of what's been wiped out and a lot of that is loss of habitat so what you're up against is big landowners who are being funded by the death row by all of us most of us not even aware you know because the, the media isn't sharing this you can read bits in the guardian or certain places if you look for it amongst nature writers but once you start to explore it, it's a, it's a travesty, you know, because most people would are supportive of reintroduction of beavers or, you know, particularly wildcats, these type of things. But we have to, first of all, be aware of what we've lost, but also then encourage the, those that money we're spending for the subsidies of sheep, for example, to be transferred onto the subsidies for nature and wildlife, for example. Wales could be an incredible um, opportunity to create a, a biodiverse landscape where people would come from all over to see maybe lynx, sea eagles, golden eagles, you know, seals, 
you dolphins, you know, wildcats are really biodiverse landscape and it can happen. You can see what happens in places like uh, Slovenia. That's happened there kind of naturally, but now it's, you know, they've got wild boar, they've got bears, they've got, you know, and farmers and that live with these wild beings as an ecosystem. But here we, because we're an island, it's very difficult because if we were part of Europe still, wolves would be in Scotland now. You know, beavers would be here. Um, lynx would probably be here because Scotland's vast and it's got so much potential. But because we're an island, we have to reintroduce a lot of these species and the laws by, you know, the Tory governments, which are funded and lobbied by these big landowning ag- organisations and agendas, which is a minority, stop any of this happening. And it's all hushed up and kept quiet. Now, lynx were a part of, if you read the Mabinogi on the old Celtic Tales of Wales, lynx are in there. You know, they're part of the, the ecosystem, these wonderful beings. Um, but there's not enough awareness of it. And there's too much negative fear put into these um, the media around it. Mm. So, yeah, that's part of why, why it's been stopped. Interestingly, Therese Coffey, the uh, environment minister stepped down yesterday. Um, was it yesterday? The day before, whenever Suella Braverman went, went. And, you know, she was awful in terms of this, trying to stop the natural progression of moving back to the biodiversity potential, which is so urgent. It's so urgent that we do it because we're... I read a report two days ago. We're, lo- you know, half our birds now on the edge of extinction, and it's so people. I don't think people really get what extinction means on that level. Extinction means gone forever, you know, and it's there. Just needs to be more awareness around it. And how do how do we make people more aware? How do we make governments more aware of the importance of this? What do you actually do? You start with with speaking to maybe in our case the potential government that might come along because it looks like we might be on the cliff edge hopefully of of 13 years of Tory rule and you reach out to people that might be a bit bit more progressive and open-minded to create policies that support um, nature recovery so for example Sadiq Khan the mayor of London just they released their first beavers in London for three four hundred years what three or four weeks ago and he did it himself and he's fully supportive of it so you get more people who are on who have the ability to change laws and make choices on your side that's one part of it i mean the crazy thing isn't it in we live in a society where they just put this guy stephen barkley in charge of the environment minister yesterday this guy's a banker yeah he's not why wouldn't you put somebody who is passionate about the environment and nature with an experience in it who's spent time in that role i mean if we go back to the festival it's it's really simple i put somebody in a role who loves what they're doing is passionate about it i don't need to encourage them to do it anyway we know that it's just obvious you know but it seems like in this in that in that world you just somebody's moved from health minister transport minister now he's environment minister it just seems insane you know so if you start with putting people in places that they that they love 
and I'm passionate about and understand. And yes, you work together with farmers. For example, in Wales, the older generation of farmers, the, sh the sheep subsidies are going to go. Then what? What do they do? What, what about the new generation? Why not sit down together and see change is inevitable? How do we look at the future and make a plan where we do create Wales as one of the most nature-thriving um, countries in Europe? The example being Mull. In the Isle of Mull, they bring in millions of pounds through nature tourism because they have otters, sea eagles, golden eagles, red deer. And it's, it's thriving from a nature tourism aspect it's a perfect example of what you could do with somewhere like wales why not entwine the the ancient patriotism of wales with the stories of the myths and the legends of the mabinogion with a with a wildlife encouraging supportive movement that supports local people encourages young people makes them feel proud for where they live plant ancient oak forest, you know, create this vision that's two, three hundred years old um, in its potential. So in, in that time, it becomes a thriving landscape, not a desert of sheep again, you know. Wow, you really touched my heart here. It's so lovely to hear you talk about these things. So you have gone, I mean, this is a, a perfect sole purpose story because as a little boy, you fell in love with nature. You found the spiritual within it. That was your haven that, that was so important to you then. Um, traveling, discovering your spirituality, learning from from good teachers, um, and and then starting to create these communities um, for the children to reintroduce nature for other children to start falling in love. But as part of that as well, giving people the roles of their own what they love, their purpose into that field, and and creating this um, model that would actually benefit the whole system, the whole of our society, give people the jobs to do that they love doing rather than dead end jobs that they're actually not even that very good at necessarily. You got a fantastic system going there from this wonderful little into the wild festival that is a, yeah, a microcosm of, of what's needed for the bigger picture. What a great teaching. That little boy, your little five-year-old, would be so proud of, of what you've created, hey? Lol, that's quite funny. I think Rumi said it, didn't he? He said, let, let what you love be what you do. Yes. And it's not it's not do what you do. The thing where he's saying that is be what you do. Yes. So then, so then what you do doesn't become, there's no boundary between work and life. It's just what you do because you love it. Yes. And it's much more spontaneous because you follow your dreaming um it's quite interesting so the first wild heart we did on the last night i fell into this deep delirious sleep because we, we were up late and it was all you know um really quite exciting and i was in this old guy called bears um giant lodge it was like a big teepee that he built out of two big teepees and i had this dream that night and in the dream, it said, what is your wildest dreaming? You know that that that, that verse people said, beyond your wildest dreams? It, it was like that. But what it, when people say beyond your wildest dream, what is your wildest dream? What are your wildest dreamings? And how do you bring them into your life, you know, as what you do? 
I think that's really important for people. And that's the hero's journey, isn't it? That's Joseph Campbell or or all the myths. They're pointing to that that treasure within the within the wound, but also within your the, the unconscious of what is your dreaming and daring to follow that because we live in an educational system and a materialistic um conceptual realm that speaks a very flat soulless language a lot of the time so we how we find a language within ourselves that is that can listen to the earth or the world because it speaks a different language as you know you know through omens through dreams through chance meetings through spontaneity and sometimes you you give it a go and it doesn't work out and you think but then something else pops up from it doesn't it you know and you're like oh okay that's that makes sense that's kind of like why that's happened so i think yeah for let people find what they love but i think you have to create containers and hopefully we can do that with some wildland some of the 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 courses or the the things we bring there where people can find that yeah yeah absolutely you know yeah, and you've just described exactly what my body of work, Middle Earth Medicine, is all about. Because we've had a lot of um, education systems with uh, careers advisors. But I always say, well, we need the soul advisors. We need people who are going to say, yeah, I get what you love. This is how how, how it shows itself in, in your life. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to create from that place? Rather than, well, yeah, that's not going to make you much of a living, get a proper job. How about doing this? This will bring the money in. So we've we've lost that connection. Our elders aren't encouraging the children to follow their dreams. And we need to re- revisit that and start to question how do we encourage children to follow their dreams? Eh? And you're in, and, in- and people of any age, I think, as well, yeah. you know, um, to, to, to be dare to step out of the kind of that particular matrix and yeah. Yeah. speak up for what they're passionate about. And especially about with nature, we need mm-hmm. more people to speak about and love the nature around them yes. and to really look out for the more than human. We're, we're so obsessed with humans in our world. You know, I mean, it's wonderful. These marches that go on like last weekend, standing up for this and that. But what about the marches for the extinction? You know, they don't never have hundreds of thousands of people that you'll probably get 20 or 30 maybe. But. You know, what about the other beings that yeah. don't have a voice that are there as part of our world and are maybe dying out? Why aren't we why aren't we furious and rising up to support those beings? You know? Wow. Why don't we indeed? Mm. Let's ponder on that for a moment. I'd love all our listeners to ponder on that for a moment. Why don't we? Why don't we stand up for nature? with a passion i think part of it in a way is to truly having to go out and spend time in nature by yourself you know um to really make that effort now and again to just go out and sit quietly and watch and listen and stay with awareness rather than the the constant neurotic waves of thought and self-referentiality you know to actually let go of that for a moment and just listen and hear and you were guaranteed always have a nature moment some being will come and visit you or appear 
and I think those are the moments that re you really start to touch into the magic, you know, the language of of of, of the you could call it the other world, but of another world that is here, always here and present, but we're just so self obsessed, you know, and that and and, and for me, part important aspect of my life from dharma if you like from buddhism has to look the fundamental aspect of dharma really is to look at the sense of self and to see it as illusory as in you know everyone's so obsessed with their personality or who they think they are but actually that's just a transient transient thing it's ever-changing so to, to to spend moments of being quiet watching from awareness you start to see that it's it's elusive you know but then it means you when you you can play with that and you can create different personalities or characters to meet each situation as it arises you know and i think yeah just making a deep connection with nature is so important and like you said with the children as well children because children are very open to that mm. you know we know they're really open to it and most people are if you give them a chance so the more we can do that then who knows you know i trust the the nature of the universe to it heals itself very quickly it regenerates very quickly um i met this guy through this process called carl jones he's an old welsh guy really interesting guy he's in his 80s now so one of the i sat up this weekend with this uh, reintroduction specialist, far, old farmer, guy called Derek Gow, not that old Derek, but um, who reintroduces beavers and water bowls. And he invited various people like Roy Dennis, who's in his 80s, who's reintroduced all the white-tailed eagles and the ospreys and um, is an incredible, dedicated his life to nature. He's an incredible man. And various people came along for this weekend down in Devon. One of them is this guy, Carl Jones. Now, Carl, when he was a kid in Wales, he was told he was going to be useless, you know, by his teacher. But what Carl did was always loved animals. And he used to look after, like, crows with broken wings in his house. And his, and his house would always be full of these kind of edge-dwelling beings, you know. From And he was a brilliant with them. And over the years, even though he's told, you know, life would become nothing or whatever, he, he met... Gerald Durrell, who was who set up a series of um, wildlife parks in Jersey and around the world, trying to help animals that were ex becoming extinct or in trouble. And Gerald had the insight to see the potential in Carl and sent him to um, Mauritius to help these falcons, which were, these particular type of falcons were dying out. I think there was twelve left in the year uh, in the world. And there was also the pink pigeon and, and various other beings, which were right on the edge of extinction. And Carl used his techniques that he taught himself as a child to help these um, birds and animals. And now he's brought back, I think, at least 10 species from the edge of extinction, and they are starting to thrive again. And they're using his techniques all across the world to help extinct animals. And this is someone you don't hear of in the news. You know, he doesn't get the become Lord Beckham or whatever, big for kicking a ball. But he's saved species of animals from extinction. I mean, how what a beautiful legacy to leave the world. 
the people like him really inspire me. You know, I'm I'm probably not going to be be doing what he did, but it's that's not the point in a way. It's just getting inspired by people's dedication to yeah. what they love. Thank you so much, Hugh. You've been such an inspiration for me today, and I know you will be for so many people who listen to this. What's your um, personal message to people who listen now? What can they take away with them from this conversation? There's a little verse, I'm not sure if it's by Hafiz or Rumi, I can't remember, but it's like, go out into nature, fall in love, stay there. Love it. From my garden shed, down in Hastings, with the rain on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of that at the moment. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Hugh. It's been a real pleasure to, to speak with you today. And... We want lots of information about your festivals, the work you're doing. So any websites, social media that you can share, we'll we'll post it here with your with this conversation so that people can get in touch if they want to, yeah, or if they can uh, just come along to Into the Wild and experience what you have to share with these communities. So um, please do send me any of that and uh, we'll post it up. I will do, and thank you. It's been a pleasure. really enjoyed it. Great. Wonderful. Bless you. Bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening right to the end. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And remember, you can be in touch with myself or this speaker. My website is middleearthmedicine.com. We have a wonderful membership platform that you can join for just £5 a month. And we have lots of recordings and interesting information that we can share with you there, plus meeting online with regular groups. You can also find the details of our speaker in the box below with their links, their websites and a little bit of information about them. Thank you for joining me and being part of this Middle Earth Medicine community. I hope you'll listen to our next show. Please follow, share, like, whatever you can do to help this community to grow. We really appreciate you. Thank you.